Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. This episode, we talk with Michael Schutzen, author of The Sociology of News, recently released in its second edition. Schutzen is the author of seven books and co-editor of three others concerning the history and sociology of the American news media, advertising, popular culture, and cultural memory. We discuss the changing nature of journalism, the effect of emerging technology on traditional news practices, and his new research on transparency as American value and policy. I'm here with Michael Schutzen today to talk about his newly updated Sociology of News. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Sarah. And let's start with a broad question. What is, at its core, the sociology of news, and what is helpful about this perspective? It's a part of the sociology of culture, or the sociology of mass media, or the sociology of knowledge, even. I mean, there are various ways you can talk about it. And I guess I could have called it the sociology of journalism, uh, because I'm really talking about how news organizations work. but I liked the notion of, of focusing it less on the organization as such than on the product that they produce, which is news. And, and what does this perspective give us that, you know, um, a study from just the perspective of economics or mass communication can't give us? I, I, I've always taken um, sociology to be a... Well, I guess a lot of disciplines are like this, but sociology is certainly one of them, a kind of imperialistic uh, discipline. And, but in a kind of a good or, or pluralistic way, uh, from my point of view, that is, um, you can find in this book, and as you can in a lot of sociology, a little bit of politics, a little bit of uh, economics, um, some history, Mm-hmm. Uh, some to understand how we get this thing called news or or other cultural products for that matter, like a, um, a film or or um, a concerto um, or a pop song. Mm-hmm. Uh, y- you need to see the variety of um, sources of it. Uh, it. it all those things will will come out of an industry that favors some things and not others. Uh, all of them will differ according to the uh, politics of the society it comes out of. Uh, all of them differ very very importantly, and and this economics I think almost always misses um, from particular cultural or intellectual traditions. So within sociology, uh, there's really no no bars on considering any of that. So you wrote the first version of the book. Um, what prompted you to update it? Was there anything in particular that compelled you to, to produce the second edition? Yes. So the first edition is 2003. Mm-hmm. And as I was looking uh, at the book, uh, thinking about assigning it in a course, I said, huh, there's, there's something fairly fundamental missing here. The the Books 200-some pages mention the Internet two or three times in passing. And I, I think that's a reasonably good sign of how quickly the digital world uh, changed 
journalism as, as an industry and a, and news production as a um, social practice. As late as 2003, it was possible. I mean, it seemed like an up-to-date book in 2003. It was yeah. it was good that I even mentioned the yeah. the internet. Yeah, I mean, right. there there wasn't such a thing as as YouTube. Uh, there was Craigslist, but it was only beginning to go national from its San Francisco home. There was blogging. There had been for some years, but only in the year. I was finishing the first edition, 2002, did did blogging kind of hit the national news with the Trent Lott affair. News organizations woke up very slowly and, of course, very uncomfortably yes. to this new world of, of the Internet. At any rate, teaching in a journalism school, it was sort of ridiculous to assign a, a book that didn't deal with the overwhelming presence um, by the late 2000s of the internet. I had to update it or or else uh, burn it. <laughs> the final chapter of the, the second edition of the Sociology of News kind of walks through these sort of gray area, emerging gray areas that used to sort of be pretty distinctly black and white um, in journalism. And I thought we could talk through a few of those. First, you mention in that chapter that the lines between writers and readers are evolving. And to what extent is that happening, and, and what are we seeing in that in that diffusion between writer and reader? The blurring of, of old distinctions um, is, is very important. It forced everyone in and around journalism um, to rethink all of this. Um, uh, it's true if you go back far enough, that there was also a blur between reader and writer, that a, in the 18th century, a correspondent was n not a full-time person. A correspondent was like um, you know, uh, was a pen pal. Mm -hmm. uh, and editors of these basically one-person operation newspapers had their friends write to them when they went traveling uh, or if they had friends abroad. Mm -hmm. That that was a correspondent. And um, th there were even papers in the 18th century that left, intentionally left some blank space so that you could um, add your notes when you passed the uh, newspaper on to a friend or, or sent a newspaper yourself through the mail to um, a friend or family member. That was, that was uh, not uncommon uh, in the American colonies at that time. Um, at any rate, a major part of the story of the history of journalism it, is that the field professionalized. It became a full-time occupation. It, it was produced for, um, by large, sometimes gargantuan organizations. And the reader became just or almost just the reader, not a writer, uh, except in unusual cases. Now, that, that's, there is a way in which that's still true. The professional has not disappeared, mm -hmm. but citizen journalists and people who comment on websites and who write into TripAdvisor or do reviews on Amazon or whatever it might be, they are by the only definitions of journalism we have, which are quite loose. They're journalists. The role between between writer and reader also kind of and professional, you know, the, the natural sort of dichotomy there is amateur. So how do we decide who's an amateur journalist and who's a professional journalist? And is that distinction going to be important in the future? It, that's going to be a distinction of taste more than anything else. It, in, it, particularly 
in, in the U.S. with the First Amendment, where government is supposed to stay out of the news business, there isn't really a, a legally binding definition of the professional journalist that separates such a person from, uh, from the amateur. And this is important because whatever protections the professional has in a strictly legal sense, uh, the amateur also has. So if, if you set up a, a blog today and start reporting on your community and, and someone wants to, to sue you, whatever, they, they can if, if they think you've uh, libeled them, but if they are a public person, say, yeah. um, you have the, the, uh, the protections of the First Amendment. You're, you're in that respect, a, a journalist. And what you don't have is the, uh, the legal department of the New York Times uh, right. or, or an, another large news organization. So you, you are more vulnerable than the professional journalist, but, um, but you can't be cleanly distinguished um, from the professional. So um, in, in, in that sense, uh, you know, we're, we're not going to have a, a clear definition of the, the difference between amateur and professional. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I think people can, certainly the professionals hope this is true, that people can recognize that, that if a news report is backed by uh, the long-time reputation of the Associated Press um, or the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post mm-hmm. uh, or CBS News, there's good reason for a, a listener or reader to, to trust that more than uh, Sarah Lagason or, or Michael Schutzman putting up their website. Right, right, right. You know, maybe, maybe we're great, but... Um, you know, how do you know that? Whereas you know that the that that reporter who has worked at the New York Times both had to have some qualifications to get that position, and has some editor um, uh, working with him or her. You know, it's been interesting too. Um, I wanted to ask you sort of the sort of sense making process people have to go through when they look at all the different avenues in which they they receive their news. So you can read a blog post, you can just read a tweet or you can read it a print newspaper and get sort of different framed versions of of a story. Um, and now it seems like professional journalists are also employing blogs and tweets. And, and so is that also a blurry line that we're seeing, is just the variety of delivery methods? Um, well, I, th- I think it's more than a, a variety of delivery um, because it, uh, because, say, to have a... a a newspaper reporter write write the story and then do a blog post as well allows the reporter to express himself or herself in a somewhat different way, more informal, more off the cuff, more intimate, mm-hmm. um, and and in a way that invites response too. You know, mm-hmm. uh, in, in the way that front page story in the print newspaper does not. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I think it's really opening. A whole new, not just delivery, but a whole new mode or line of communication. Now, you wrote a report with uh, with Leonard Downey um, in 2009, called "The Reconstruction of American Journalism," and you also allude to this some of the themes in that report in the in the book, in the final chapter, and and part of it's on how 
how to finance these new models. So what are newspapers doing in response to the blurring lines between amateurs, professionals, and readers and writers? Let me let me just say one thing prefatory to directly answering your question, mm-hmm. which is like a, a number of sociologists, um, I'm now uh, beginning in 2006 and full-time since 2009 um, working in a professional school, not primarily in a sociology department. So it has kind of forced me into a new position and also um, allowed me to take advantage of of a position where some of my colleagues, actually many of them, are not sociologists, they're journalists, people I work with on a regular basis. And in this case, the, the whole economic transformation of journalism took the world of newspapers especially so uh, so much by surprise yeah. that that the Columbia Journalism School like others was kind of a, a little slow picking up on it hmm. um, and one of the responses they had was that the the dean uh, Nicholas Lemon wanted to have the school not make an official statement, but but uh, contribute to the uh, intense discussion about you know are our newspapers going to disappear? Um, wh- where's where in the world is journalism going? Um, and so he he asked um, Downey, who had just um, that year retired uh, from the as editor of the Washington Post, to lead the study, and he asked me to um, be co-author. Um, so th- this was a great opportunity for me, and Downey and I did a, a lot of interviewing of um, people in decision-making roles at um, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the uh, Washington Post. Of course, he, he knew particularly well. The Guardian uh, in London, the BBC, uh, the Financial Times, mm-hmm. um, the British situation was a little different, but they were beginning to um, deal with some some of the same issues, and and some of the new startups, the Voice of San Diego and and um, ProPublica and others. So so th- that's that's what we brought to the study, and um, and we watched um, and attended to what was going on on the in terms of finding a new business model um our our report sort of steered clear of um making particular recommendations on uh, the business model because we didn't know and i'd have to say i still don't know uh, of course if i did um uh, I, I would tell the world or else um become a corporation and then tell the world. Um, <laughs> Good strategy. But, yeah, I mean, th- at the time we wrote this, most people were were very um, pessimistic about, um, say, a, a paywall. Could, yeah. could you make, um, could you charge people for reading uh, the New York Times online? Um, I mean, uh, you could technically. The Wall Street Journal was doing it. The Financial Times was doing it, um, but the the New York Times was not. It had had one very unpleasant um, experiment in that direction yep. uh, that was disastrous. Mm-hmm. Um, 
where you could get all the paper except the uh, op-ed columnists, uh, and turns out a lot of people really wanted them, mm-hmm. but not enough to pay for them. Right, exactly. Um, so, and people found other ways to get to them without paying. Now, uh, the, the Times has um, a paywall, and others are moving into having a paywall um, where you pay you get a certain number of stories you can read free, but if you want more stories than that or a complete um, run of the website, you you pay for it. Um, and some of those experiments uh, seem to be working quite well. They are they are bringing in money. This was also in part a response to the fact that the websites uh, were not bringing in much money. Uh, they they thought originally most newspapers that, well, um, you know, advertising has kept us in business for um, a couple of centuries. Just because we're going online doesn't mean we can't keep relying on advertising. But um, advertisers were not willing to pay as much uh, for on, to advertise online, and the advertising, though it has grown online, um, has not really paid for itself. Hmm. That might change, but at at this point, it looks like the subscription plus a certain amount of advertising subscription or paywall model may have a better chance. The, the other uh, unfortunate way of making money um, is to cut your costs. Right. And um, all over the uh, newspaper and broadcast industry, uh, news organizations have uh, slashed jobs so that we have in, in the newspaper part of the world, um, about a third fewer people um, in full-time employment in newsrooms than we had uh, in 2000. Wow. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's serious, and people have been very worried about that. Uh, not so much in terms of national news, where you mm-hmm. still have major players. I mean, the New York Times newsroom is smaller than it was in 2000, but not by a lot. Right. Um, and their capacities are, because of the online assets they have, are enormously greater than they were in 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the local level, cutting the newsroom is, is quite dangerous for civic um, purposes, for people's understanding of what's going on in terms of um, local politics or the local environment and so on. There, because in most cases, there aren't very many alternatives to the Metropolitan Daily Newspaper in terms of a- actually covering news. Beyond the, the local coverage, what are there other things people are worried about as we're looking towards new models of, of journalism? Um, what are, the, are there ethical concerns or concerns about information gathering or sources? I mean, what, what are people worried about? There, there are various worries. I mean, there there are concerns about... Um, Foreign news coverage, although there, in that area, there are some optimists as well as pessimists, uh, as people realize that um, foreign sources of news um, are vastly more available to people in this country than they were ten years ago, uh, and and that certainly seems a you know a good development, and uh, the some of the cutbacks of in foreign bureaus have also forced those who are still in the foreign news business here uh, to rely more on 
freelancers and uh, others often who have more experience, who are, who are located in the countries being covered yeah. and um, who have more experience than, than parachuting in from um, the, the Bureau two countries down the road. Yeah. Uh, so it may be that in the foreign area there are as many gains as losses. There are also concerns about um, editing. Um, there are fewer editors. Uh, things go up much more quickly yeah. uh, on, on online um, without as many eyeballs or any eyeballs um, uh, looking them over first. Uh, again, this is a place where the world of the Internet is is what a, a mixed evil or a mixed blessing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, things go up more quickly. Uh, there are more mistakes. There are there's faster correction of the mistakes, not only by um, the the news organization, but by other people who see it and and write in quickly and say that's not right. Mm-hmm. And right. Um, so one of the places where it seems to me, uh, in this case, very much as an outsider, is that it, it just looks like um, a much tougher business uh, for um, uh, a person to go into. That you, you know, I I love it as a um, sociologist mm-hmm. who publishes to finish an article, send it, send it to the journal. They they criticize. I revise. They accept it. And one day I get page proofs, and they say, don't change anything except, you know, terrible spelling error or something. <laughs> um, and then I do that, and then it's done. I don't get to change it again. Uh, well, that's, that used to be the way in journalism, too, but it's not anymore. Yeah. Uh, you're posting and changing, and you, you, you can't go to sleep. So the, the, the picture of the journalist as, as a hamster on a wheel yeah. looks to me... Uh, to be increasingly accurate. Yeah. Now you've pointed to some, but on the flip side, you know what are what are the the potentials or the the great benefits we could see from from these new models? The the first benefit, which is now we almost take for granted, but when when the, my report with Downey was um, just a month or two after it came out, this was end of two thousand nine. I was at a conference where I heard David Carr, a business writer for the New York Times, um, and he covers the media. Uh, he he was on a panel and he he was talking about the impact that the internet is making on journalism. And he was in the midst of his talk and and he stopped and went back to the table where the other panelists and picked up his laptop and he he held it above his head and said. There is more journalistic firepower, there are more journalistic resources in my hand at this moment than in the entire New York Times newsroom 10 years ago. <laughs> and you realized he's absolutely right. Yeah. You, you, that, that he can call up all kinds of sources, all kinds of databases, all kinds of other news outlets that would have taken so much time if it had been possible at all in the in the pre-digital New York Times. So that's at the hands of every journalist in the country and almost, I mean, the vast majority of journalists in the world at this point. Mm -hmm. It's completely mind-boggling. And it's 
also available to not everyone, but tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people who have access to a computer as consumers of news. Yeah. You know, if we used to have two, three, five, eight newspaper cities in this country. We don't anymore. We have, what, a, a handful of uh, cities left with two daily newspapers or more. But who needs them? Uh, you know, if, if, if you want to uh, get a variety of points of view uh, on some event of the day, uh, you, you have endless numbers of sources uh, on, on your computer. Uh, so th- that's just that's just extraordinary, and I'm I'm also struck again here not as a journalist but as an academic at the at a kind of blurring of the lines between journalism and academia. Mm-hmm. Um, journalists are more able to uh, take advantage of, make use of academics than they used to. Uh, they they also are very serious about the business of figuring out how to use um, complex databases uh, on their own or sometimes in, in association with academics. They create, I mean, w- w- what, what is Wikipedia? Yeah. Is, is, it, is, it a, um, is it a reference volume like Britannica or is it a news organization? Mm-hmm. You know, th- things, it updates all the time. Mm-hmm. If there's a, an athlete who won a gold medal yesterday or even this morning at the London Olympics, um, that you will be able to know that by going up on Wikipedia right now. Yep. Uh, that's, and, you know, and this is done, you know, not entirely, but largely by amateur labor. Yes. Um, so it, this also is... Um, and I don't want to keep repeating the word mind-boggling, but, <laughs> but uh, my mind, at any rate, is boggled. Mm-hmm. So now that the, the second edition of Sociology News um, has been published, what is, what's next for your own research agenda? What, what are you looking at now? It relates very indirectly, um, well, indirectly, not very indirectly, mm-hmm. to all of this. Um, I'm doing a study of the emergence of transparency, transparency um, norms and practices, which we tend to associate with um, the digital era. But I got very interested in the period from about 1960 to 1975, actually the early 1950s to 1975 or 80, when a whole variety of very important and very influential developments occurred that seemed to me all related to a new valuation of transparency, openness, naturalness, um, uh, ways in, in which information becomes more accessible and more, more accessible without special access or, or secrecy clearance or so forth. So right. um, we have the Freedom of Information Act, which members of Congress started to think about and plan uh, in the middle of the 1950s. It passes 1966, uh, it gets significantly strengthened in 1974, and it has changed the way journalists and historians and others uh, write what they write and do what they do. Um, Everyone complains that it doesn't work as well as it should, and and that's surely true, but... um, 
Um, but it worked terribly well compared to anything we had before. And it was it has had worldwide significance. At, at the time it passed in the U.S., um, Sweden and Finland were the only countries that had had anything like it. Sweden since 1766. Now there are 50, 60, 70 countries with uh, Freedom of Information Acts, some of which are are quite powerful, some of which are not not so great. But then a a few years later, 1970, Mm -hmm. the House of Representatives ended a, a practice that went back to the early 19th century of certain votes on amendments to important bills being basically secret. That, that is, uh, you couldn't tell what representative voted for and what representatives voted against these particular bills. The details are complicated, but mm-hmm. but they changed all of that in, in 1970. The Congress itself became much more open, and, and it astonished me to learn that until 1970, uh, on this large number of significant votes, you could not find out um, how your own representative had voted. Um, it it sure. just wasn't public information. I mm-hmm. mean, you could ask your representative and he would or wouldn't tell you, but th- this was also uh, uh, an important development. The environmental impact statement uh, becomes law at the same time, 1970, uh, uh, and is the basis for the overwhelming number of um, lawsuits against the government, litigation against the government for uh, failure to take environmental matters seriously. Um, and some of those lawsuits, environmental organizations win and some they lose. I mean, and I gather it's about 50 50. Uh, but that's an entire domain of uh, American law that didn't exist before. 1970. Mm-hmm. So, um, meanwhile, in the in the more general public, doctors are coming to be more frank uh, about their diagnoses with patients. They tended not to tell cancer patients they had cancer before the 1960s and 70s. They uh, almost all are, are frank about this uh, thereafter. Um, Judy Bloom started writing books in the late 60s for uh, preteens uh, and talking about the joys and woes of um, uh, puberty, which um, you couldn't find anything about that in children's books before then. So th- there, there was a, I got, without telling you my whole book now, yeah. um, I, I got very interested in, in this kind of wave of um, an increased openness in society, and I'm, I'm intrigued by how many different arenas of American life it's something important to happen in. Uh, including consumer information, you know, unit pricing and nutritional labeling and all mm-hmm. this stuff that, again, didn't exist before that time. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because you could approach it also as like a value, as an emerging value, but also it's clearly a, an implemented policy, too, in all these different arenas. So there's a very tangible effect to study, which is really that, yes, interesting. Yes, that's right. And and um, I'm I'm learning history. I thought I knew because I lived at the time. Yeah, but right. um, um, but I my original assumption was that I would be writing a piece of a history of what we call the '60s. But a lot of this happened before the so-called the '60s began. A lot a lot of this came out of the 
Congress in the late 50s and early 60s. Um, and, that, and what we think of as the 60s is what... Um, it begins mm-hmm. not before 1965. Well, it's interesting, too. I mean, all of these ideas about information and, and transparency clearly now are, are even accelerated again, perhaps a new wave in the, in the ways we discussed before and just how there's suddenly this access to information, almost so much information you don't know how to manage it sometimes. Yes, I know I would not be doing this particular study if if I weren't influenced by what's going on now and particularly by my graduate students who are so much more thoroughly a part of the digital world and and, and its I- ideals and ideology uh, than I am. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast today and uh, and we will look forward to your next your next book on uh, on emerging transparency. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, you're most welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks.